Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the most difficult episode of any ongoing podcast, episode number two of the Essential X Lapsed. Uh, it's the most difficult for a few reasons, um, mostly because, you know, the, the shine is kind of uh, gone here. It's kind of like when Marvel or DC reboot a, uh, an ongoing series, and you have that first issue and you're all excited, and then there's a second issue and it's just, uh, well, business as usual. So here we are, business as usual, and today we're going to be talking about, uh, well, look at that, X-Men number two. Set in November 1963, coveted. It's hard to say 19 in the beginning of a year, isn't it? Story is called No One Can Stop the Vanisher, written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby, inks by Paul Reinman, letters uh, Sam Rosen, colors by your guess is as good as mine. And this had a cover price of 12 cents. I don't know what day this was released, so we're not even going to try. So let's start this one with uh, the cover. Now, our cover has us in front of our nation's capital. Well, for those of us in the United States, anyway. The world's most handsome evil mutant, the Vanisher, is surrounded by the X-Men, but uh, still, he's making threats. Marvel Girl is directing traffic, telling the fellas to stand back on the orders of Professor X. Professor X is, like, sitting right there. And, uh, I mean, so far he hasn't been shy about dishing out orders, so, uh, I don't know, maybe he and Jean already have that special bond. Now we open with a traveling montage, and uh, I would like to imagine that Sheena Easton's 9 to 5 is uh, playing in the background of this scene. You know, the My Baby Takes the Morning Train. Uh, the professor has psychically summoned the X-Men to him, so we are watching the X-Men head into school. Now Beast literally hops a train from New Haven, and I would assume that means Connecticut, but... Uh, that would make it a, well, if Google's correct, a nearly four-hour train ride, which would include a change-off in uh, New York City before going up to Westchester. Uh, there is also a New Haven, New York, but that town is very tiny, and it's near the Canadian border, and it's a five-hour car ride, and if you believe it, something like a 13-hour train ride, so I don't know. We'll say Connecticut. I don't know. Elsewhere, Warren Worthington in his angel togs is being gang-molested by a gaggle of teeny boppers. Like, literally, they are groping him, kissing him. They just love them some angel. Now, Jean's off to the side, and she doesn't like what she's seeing, so she uses her telekinesis to lift the, quote, chickadees off a of warren, and then she deposits them atop a theater marquee. Now, the movie being shown here is Teen-Ager's Tears, starring Tuesday Weld, which sadly doesn't appear to be an actual film that exists in our world. Now, it's worth noting, just a year before this issue hit, Tuesday Weld was Stanley Kubrick's first choice to star in Lolita. Now, she claimed that, uh, well, she was Lolita in real life, and so she really didn't have a need to uh, take the role. Okay, then. Anyway, the mental exertion of telekinetically relocating several hundred pounds of raging hormones proves to be a little too much for Jeannie, and so she faints right into Warren's waiting arms. Slim and Bobby, during their trek to the school, witness a wall falling over at a construction site. Cyclops uses the full intensity of his optic glass to pulverize the wall before it can crush any helpless construction workers. They are thanked by the crew. I mean, humans just love the X-Men. I mean, th there's no fear, there's no hate. It's only love. Now, to make it the rest of the way to the school, Scott and Bobby hitch a ride on an ice cream truck. Now, okay, guys. This ice cream truck... I mean, they are dressed in their X-Men costumes right now. Bobby is a snowman. Scott has his, you know, his togs and his visor, right? 
the school, the, 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 the ice cream truck here drops them right off at the Xavier School. Um, I, I, I thought this was supposed to be a secret location. I don't know. Whatever the case, Bobby is forced to pay for the three chocolate chip pops that he stole on the drive home. Now inside, Professor X coldly commands them to assemble before him. And uh, I tell you, he's a real jerk here. Kitty Pride was right. He then demands silence while he plays a film strip on the wall about the teens and their changing bodies. Well, no, it's, it's actually a film strip about our new villain, The Vanisher. Bobby accidentally speaks, interrupting the professor, which results in him getting a demerit. Well, my heavens, a demerit. Uh, The film shows the vanisher casually asking a police officer for directions to a bank because he plans to rob it. First, he gets mocked for his costume, though, because I'm pretty sure every costume character in this book is going to be made fun of at least once for their fashion sense. Anyway, the police decide to follow the Vanisher into the bank so they can arrest him after he commits his crime. So I guess they really want a rock-solid case against him here, you know. Uh, they, they need to see this happen. So the Vanisher, he's in there, he takes the loot. But before the officers can cuff him, he, believe it or not, he vanishes. Cyclops wonders if this means that the Vanisher's a mutant. Professor X assumes this to be the case. Then, for no reason other than the fact that he's just 16 years old, Bobby starts hurling a torrent of snowballs all over the featureless void of a room that we're currently in. Jean then uses her powers of teleportation to redirect the snowballs and send them right back into Bobby's face. And yes, she does say teleportation. Uh, Maybe old Stan just has the vanisher on the brain here, I don't know. This is probably why you should never edit your own work. Yeah, I love Stan, but come on. Professor Xavier once again demands order and tells his team that they need more training. And so he introduces us to the Danger Room, which is the only room in the mansion that's meant to be a featureless void, believe it or not. Now, remember that training session we looked at in Issue 1? Well, this is basically more of that. Uh, First up, we see Angel, who fails to catch a missile that the professor fires at him. Xavier tells him to pretend the missile is the Vanisher. Okay. After checking Warren's vitals, the prof tells him he needs to build up his resistance. The beast is next, and he does some flippity-doos over some obstacles, and uh, while he applauds himself for a job well done, a trap door opens under his feet, and, well, he goes falling. Hank is able to catch himself in the shaft, which (laughs) sounds a lot less uh, innocent than it's supposed to. Uh, From there, he's able to stop his descent and even flippity-doos his way out of the hole, and the professor is mighty pleased. Speaking of mighty, we shift scenes over to the mighty Pentagon, which is to say, you know, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The Vanisher appears here, and he introduces himself as Homo Superior. He threatens that in the next few days, he's going to come back and steal some top-secret government plans. These are the Continental Defense Plans, to be precise. He explains to a couple of Pentagonian bigwigs that he has the power of teleportation. And I'm both glad and disappointed that he didn't say telekinesis here. Uh, One of the bigwigs refers to this as pure science fiction balderdash. And, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anyone unironically use balderdash in a sentence. Next we know the Vanisher is chilling with a bunch of underworld hoodlums. Now, they all see him as being their meal ticket since he is so powerful, and he agrees to let them become his lackeys. Back to the danger room, where Marvel Girl is attempting to hoist a gigantic ball over her head using her teleport kinesis. 
This proves to be too daunting a task, and so it's left to Cyclops to blast the ball before it crushes her. Bobby uses this opportunity to be, uh, well, a 16-year-old again. I've mentioned that, right? He slides an ice horse toward Scott and Jean uh, for reasons that I'm sure made sense to him. Bobby then engages in some training of his own, creating an ice grapple. Which, like, like you know, like a grapple, like a, like a mountain climber, you know? Uh, shouldn't he just be working on his ice slide? Uh, maybe they haven't figured that part out yet. Now, while the team continues to train, Professor X reaches out to his FBI contact. Welcome to the book, Special Agent Fred Duncan. And we're going to be seeing uh, quite a bit of Fred Duncan throughout these early issues. Now, Duncan, it's worth noting, has to wear this weird tiara, or a scalp device, in order to communicate telepathically with the professor. I guess they didn't know just how powerful Xavier's mind was at this point, which is fair, is fair. Duncan informs Xavier that the Vanisher has threatened the Pentagon. And you'd think this would be more urgent. Like, maybe Duncan would have just picked up the phone and called, rather than waiting to Xavier to ring him up on his scalp device to tell him about it? I don't know. Anyway, lickety-split, the X-Men are loaded into a McDonnell XV-1 convertiplane, which is apparently a real thing that exists, or at least existed. It's a, a compound helicopter. You see, it can fly higher and faster than a normal helicopter, but it can still take off and land vertically, so it doesn't need a whole lot of runway to, to make, its, uh, you know, make its takeoffs and stuff. From here, we go back to the Pentagon. The Continental Defense Plans, which our evil mutant of the bi-month has threatened to steal, is sitting on a desk in a briefcase surrounded by four, four armed nudniks. Like, why haven't they just been hidden somewhere else? Like, why haven't the Pentagonians just maybe filled this briefcase with blank pieces of paper or fake plans? I don't know. Why ask why? Anyway, the Vanisher then pops into the scene, like on top of this table, grabs the briefcase, and with the plans, he ports out into a hallway. And I've got to ask, uh, why didn't he just port out like 20 miles away in any direction? Jack goes right into a hallway. And there he's dogpiled by a bunch of Pentagonians, but... Uh, you know, he vanishes again, go figure. He reappears on the steps of the building, um, and I don't know if the Pentagon has steps. I, I really don't know, because I, I would Google it, you know, the steps to the Pentagon, but uh, that would just tell me how to draw a Pentagon. It's got five sides, don't you know? Anyway, it's outside on the steps of the Pentagon where the Vanisher runs into the Uncanny X-Men. Gene can immediately sense that the Vanisher is a mutant, I don't know if that's a... I don't know how she can do that, but okay. Worth noting, the Vanisher immediately knows who the X-Men are, so uh, word has gotten around from their uh, Cape Citadel adventure last issue. Angel swoops in and he grabs the Vanisher. Who vanishes? Beast is able to grab the plans, but he stands around like an idiot celebrating so long that the Vanisher pops back in and re-steals them. Hank was just so happy that he might be invited onto the Ed Sullivan show for his heroism, and, uh, well, you, I guess you, uh, you snooze, you lose, or whatever that is. Cyclops zaps the briefcase out of the Vanisher's hand, and Jean is able to grab it with her teleport kinesis. Vanisher pretends to be impressed by the young mutants long enough to sidle up alongside Jean and then spray her in the face with sleeping gas. Iceman then ices up the Vanisher's mitts, but the Vanisher vanishes and the X-Men are left to lick their wounds. The next day, the X-Men's failure is on the cover of the Star Bulletin newspaper, while the sales kid touts that the Vanisher made the X-Men look like monkeys, 
which I would think Beast might take personally. Back home, the X-Men watched the news. So they went all the way back to Westchester? Like, why not get a hotel room in D.C.? Or maybe crash with Duncan, I don't know. Anyway, the professor and the fellas are all quite upset. Jean just leans up against the wall and stares into the reader's eyes with a sad and forlorn look on her mug. Now, the news report reveals that the Vanisher has now demanded $10 million, tax-free. Tax-free? Are supervillains known for paying taxes on the money they steal? What kind of balderdash is this? Iceman then reminds us that he's only 16 years old by icing up Warren's wings. But why? Bobby claims that he's using, quote, quick-drying liquid ice. What in the hell even is that? Uh, Cyclops uses his optic beams, to, beams even, to melt Warren's wings, while the professor lambastes the team for their childish antics. And I mean, they, they are children, right? Especially Bobby, who's only 16. Xavier's decided that it's finally come time for him to join them on the battlefield here, which, I mean, wow, this is like their second outing. I might mention here that uh, the X-Men had an easier time with Mag Friggin' Nito than they currently are with Telford Friggin' Porter. Huh. Now, the professor claims that this will be an exercise to illustrate how strength isn't always enough. He then shows them another film strip, and it's the Vanisher vanishing at 20,000 frames per second. And that's what the, uh, the dorks on Reddit will be complaining about come the time of the PlayStation 25, probably. Now, the film strip is supposed to show the teens that this battle will require a different tact. The professor goes on to call the White House to inform them of his plan, and an aide confirms that he will pass this information on to the chief executive, which I'm assuming means President Kennedy, though I I might be mistaken. Next, we know the X-Men are back in D.C. in front of the Capitol building. They find themselves faced off with the Vanisher and, like, two dozen underworld lackey goofs. He's here, of course, to collect his $10 million tax-free dollars. And so, the professor rolls over to the Vanisher and... mind-wipes him. And that's it. Uh, the Vanisher's forgotten how to teleport. He's forgotten who he is. He can barely stand up. He is just, like, completely out of it here. Just then, the underworld mooks, realizing that their meal ticket is now a drooling simpleton, decide to attack. The beast bounces around the lawn, disarming each mook, Cyclops then blasts the ground below them, causing them to fall into this resulting hole. Iceman creates like an apple pie lattice pattern, you know, like a, like the, the, the pattern on top of an apple pie. He does this in ice, of course, because he is Iceman, over the hole in order to keep the baddies in. Uh, elsewhere on the lawn, Jean uh, teleport kinetically grabs some guns and points them right back at the bad guys. And then Angel swoops in with a flying clothesline, and, uh, well, that's about it for the goofs. We wrap up the issue with the X-Men learning a powerful lesson that sometimes the greatest power on Earth is the magnificent power of the human brain. Which is all well and good as a lesson, right? But uh, I don't have to remind you guys that uh, not all of us have the ability to mind-wipe our foes, do we? So maybe we need to try a little bit harder than Professor X does. So let's talk about this here. Wow, um, <laughs> these, these old Silver Age stories are pretty dense, aren't they? Um, usually when you think about the X-Men and wordiness, uh, your brain might immediately go to Chris Claremont or maybe John Byrne about just how word-packed those pages can be. But, uh, you know, Stan's no slouch. 
in the words department here, he does not uh, he does not give uh, Kirby a whole lot of space in a lot of these pages here. It's probably why we have such uh, sparse backgrounds in a lot of these panels. It's just why bother? It's just going to get covered with a with a word balloon anyway, right? I mean, I think it was last issue, or it was obviously last issue. There's only the second episode where we saw Magneto. We saw his feet because his entire body was covered in a word balloon. So. These issues be wordy. They sure in the hell do. <laughs> Let's go with some takeaways here. I hear the first thing that jumped out to me, and this was early on in the issue here, is that the X-Men are almost, like, universally loved. Um, there really is no hatred and fear, and that will eventually come, but I'm looking forward to seeing that happen because maybe this is just a me-Mandela affecting myself or just a case of misremembering or conflation, but... I assume that from the very get-go, the uh, the fear and hate would be uh, present. So uh, when this finally, when the worm here finally does turn, and the X Men are, you know, hated by humanity, I wonder how forced that's going to feel. Because here, like it seems as though they're treated no differently than the Fantastic Four or the Avengers. It's like, hey, you saved us. We like you, you know. And I mean, Warren's getting molested by a bunch of teenagers here. It's very weird for a group that's supposed to be uh, like outcasts here. This is just an odd little bit of uh, ex-trivia that I'd pretty much completely forgotten about. So that's very interesting to see. And uh, again, when the worm finally does turn here, I just, uh, I'm very excited to see if it feels organic, natural, or if it feels like, okay, well, we need to differentiate this team from, uh, you know, the other super teams here. We need to give the X-Men a reason to be different. And uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. I'm looking forward to it. Another takeaway is that the X-Men are a little uh, loose-lipped with uh, their secrets here, aren't they? Um, and I mean, I've joked before that Professor X is going to, his go-to for this era is going to be the mind wipe. You know, that's going to be plan A. You know, it's like, I don't like this person or this person poses a potential threat, so boom, their memory's gone. That's just his go-to. So here, I mean, we have Cyclops and Iceman being dropped off at Xavier's in their costumes by an ice cream man. That feels weird, right? <laughs> like, that shouldn't, like, it, was the ice cream man mind-wiped on his way out? I, I really don't know. Also, Professor X appearing in public alongside the X-Men and talking about being a mutant. That's also kind of strange here. Um, and I've told the story before about uh, the big reveal during the Morrison run where... Professor X goes on TV, and he comes out of the closet as a mutant, right? And I remember people really, uh, like, really getting worked up about that. It's like, wow, this is a huge deal. And for me, I was like, didn't everybody already know? You know, I didn't think anybody thought he was a human. I thought everybody just knew he was part of the X-Men. He was, you know, the the X in the X-Men to uh, to the layman, perhaps. So I didn't see that as being a big deal. And then here, we have him on the White House lawn. After talking to the president, or checking in with the president, talking about being a mutant and then, uh, you know, robbing a guy of his memories. It's uh, <laughs> very, very weird. So I guess um, the identities and the powers in the school will only be a secret when the story demands that it needs to be a secret, I guess. <laughs> I guess we'll see as we go. We get uh, yet another training sequence. I, I shouldn't say yet another. This is only the second issue. But uh, one thing that I do remember about these early issues of X-Men is that 
we're going to see a bunch of these training sequences, and that's fine. That's fine. It just feels uh, a little bit repetitive is all. But, I mean, got to remember, this was a bi-monthly book back in 1963, and these weren't collectibles back then as, as much as uh, they would become. So you got to assume that a kid might pick up issue two and not, not even have access to issue one or even know there was an issue one in, in some cases. So uh, I, I understand a bit of the repeat repeatability here. I don't think Stan and Jack figured that some, you know, 40 year old idiot in 60 some odd years was going to be, uh, doing a show about this every day. So, <laughs> you know, I gotta, I'll concede that one to them here. Uh, rep- repetition is fine in this situation. I suppose it's just something we're going to see a lot of, I think in the next, uh, several episodes here. But speaking of the training sessions here, one thing that really stuck out to me was uh, Professor Xavier taking Angel's vitals after he uh, performed. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was a neat little bit where it's like, okay, you're done. Come over here. I'm going to listen to your heartbeat, and we're going we're gonna to monitor you. I, just something I never would have thought of. Um, I mean, you don't see that now. You don't see that in the, the Shi'ar uh, danger room. It's... Just an interesting little bit there. It's uh, I, I really dug it. It lent to a bit of a, I don't I don't know if it's so much realism, but um, it's kind of the way you would expect a coach to uh, to react or to perform and uh, to mentor. You know, just making sure that their that his charges are are safe and healthy and uh, not overdoing it. I really kind of dug that. The Fanisher bits were uh, silly but fun, and uh, I mean. This is all fiction, so everything is, you know, written with a reason. But uh, I feel like so much of this was written just to facilitate the next scene. And I mean, that's fine. That's, you know, that's a way of telling a story. But it's like the Vanisher goes and he, he, you know, he makes the threat. Then we get Fred Duncan who reveals the threat. The X-Men show up. The Vanisher steals something. Then zaps himself into a hallway so he can get dogpiled. Then zaps himself right outside the building so he can get attacked. Very weird. Um, And it was interesting how... uh, the X-Men were, like, unable to beat him here. Just last issue, they made Magneto run off and, and uh, you know, scurry away. But here, the Vanisher, it's a whole different uh, ball of wax here. And um, I think that's going to be the pattern for the uh, first handful of these issues as we introduce a uh, rogues gallery. I think it's going to be more repetition. I think it's going to be the X-Men going up against the bad guy, losing initially. And then coming back around and either defeating them or standing off to the side while Professor X mind wipes them. That's kind of going to be the M.O. going forward here, I believe. Finally, just a little bit on the characterization here. Um, I feel like they haven't quite settled on who these characters just are, are just yet. But, I mean, it, we're only two issues in. That's perfectly fine to uh, to still be learning these characters and trying to figure out what their, what their role is going to be, what their personality is going to be. All we really know... Is that they're teenagers and uh, they're sometimes immature, and Professor X is a jerk, <laughs> and uh, and Jean's the girl. That's all we really know at this point. But um, hopefully sooner than later we'll start to uh, maybe we'll start learning more about Warren being you know the the playboy and uh, Beast being intelligent, and uh, maybe Bobby will remain immature because he he is only sixteen years old. But we'll have Scott with his angst and. Gene being like the low-key, most powerful person on the team and stuff like that. I think we'll get there probably sooner than later, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, when we are there. 
Uh, more Jack Kirby art and Kirby, like I said last episode, hot and cold. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's sometimes it's less good. You know, when you talk about Kirby, stock faces come up, right? You know, the the concept that Kirby has certain faces for certain character types. And I mean, we have the the Vanisher here, who I swear, I you know, you'll see in any DC Bronze Age comic as like the the frog faced guy. It's just very, very similar. It's one of Kirby's go-to faces, and uh, I mean, that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just kind of a thing. And uh, I mean, again, he didn't think that there'd be an idiot here talking about it on a, on a podcast in you know sixty years hence. So, what are you gonna do? <laughs> but uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue here. But before we go. We've actually got a letter in the mailbag here. How about that? And uh, I do want to thank everyone for uh, for listening to the first episode here. It performed a lot better than I expected it to, and we're only we're only about halfway through the day here, and it's uh, it's performing quite well. I know it has a number one on it, which if uh, Marvel and DC have taught us anything, number ones they get the hits. <laughs> but uh, I do want to thank everyone for at least trying out this uh, new uh, you know side direction. While I wait for my current year books to arrive to uh, continue the main X-Lapsed program here, I hope, uh, and I hope you'll stick around as well. I think this is going to be a lot of fun moving forward here. But let's dip into the mailbag. We got a letter from our friend Jesse. He's talking about X-Men number one. Hey, he says, uh, good afternoon, Chris. I hope your back is doing better. And yes, it is. It is. It took about a week and a half, but uh, I can now twist. I'm okay. <laughs> and, I'm uh, trying to be a little less, um, a little more ginger in my movements and uh, not as uh, exaggerated in my squats and my torques and stuff like that. So fingers crossed it'll, uh, it'll remain. And uh, I'm actually sleeping through the night now, not, not waking up with uh, spasms. So that's, a, that's also a good thing. Jesse continues, I was wondering what you were going to do now that you're no longer lapsed. And the options that you listed on the recent episode were the same I would have guessed you would have gone with. I first would have guessed that the Rosenberg Uncanny Era, including the Age of X-Men, but then why not go back and start with the Color Era? But you went a step beyond and decided to start from the very beginning. That is brave and bold, even though that's the wrong publisher. <laughs> yes, um, you know, like I said in the first episode, I didn't know where to go. I am still, you know, we're, I'm not Hoxpox lapsed, but I'm still overall X-lapsed here. I'm still missing a lot of uh, information, you know, the the color run, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about that. Um, the uh, post-extermination X-Force, I don't know anything about that. The Rosenberg Uncanny, I don't know anything about that. I have read a couple of issues of Age of X-Men for, uh, for what was going to be a Patreon exclusive that I just never got around to doing, but I have read a little bit of it, and I, I thought it was, it was okay. It wasn't... Uh, didn't rock my socks necessarily, but it didn't make me mad either. So that's a, that's a good thing. But uh, I've long been looking for a reason to revisit some of these old stories here. I had my essential volume staring at me, and it's like, you know, I'd love to just dig into those and uh, and just, you know, re- relive these, you know, relive a little bit of history here and um, just never got around to it. So I figured, yeah, why not? Why not? We have, we have an opening right now, and uh, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, Hey, I mean, we can always skip over to the to the Rosenberg run. We can jump to the color run. I mean, there are no rules here, which is a, is a good thing, I suppose. And I make, uh, like, no illusions that I intend to ever, you know, cover all 645 issues of Uncanny. I mean, that's something we might do, but I'm not going to say 
out front that that's exactly what we're going to do because, I mean, that's a lot. And that's a long, long time. Uh, Jesse continues. A few letters ago, I ended my writing with saying that the 60s X-Men comics put me to sleep. The whole story is that in 2020, I made a New Year's resolution to read an issue of Uncanny X-Men a day starting from the beginning. I just finished issue 20, so you see how that went. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, it's not quite daily, is it? Um, This is actually going to motivate me to want to keep up with my reading so that I can follow along. I've never gotten past maybe issue 8 before, so this was my attempt to get past that point, and now I have. Now, that's an awesome resolution here. And, I, I mean, that uh, I've mentioned my resolutions in the past where every, every New Year's Day I was going to start a blog before I actually did start a blog. And one of them was going to be, you know, an X-Men blog where every single day I was going to read, like just like you had it here, read a, a different issue uh, starting from the beginning and working my way up here just to have, you know, I don't know, just a project, right? Uh, just a project that I can do and I can contribute to the commentary community and work on building a resource. And uh, yeah, that never happened. <laughs> I mean, here we are probably seven, eight years later and I'm on issue two. So, didn't get too far myself. Um, it is it is different. Uh, these issues are going to be different than the Claremont stuff. Uh, they are going to be different than the Lobdell stuff. They're going to be different than the Morrison stuff. These are going to be... not going to lie, some days this is going to be a slog. Some days these stories are going to suck. <laughs> some days they're going to be a lot of fun. But, uh, I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound here. So um, I just think it's awesome that you're going to be uh, on this uh, journey with us here, Jesse. It really, really means a lot. And hopefully we can, uh, we can help bolster each other up when the, uh, when, the going gets, when the going gets dull. Because, um, I mean, we got Kazar stories in here. We got the Savage Land. I mean, it's, some days it's going to be a little, bit, uh, a little bit tougher than others. Jesse continues. Looking back on issue one, I have a confession to make. I'm not a huge fan of Kirby's art. I never have been. Blasphemy, right? Lee's writing kind of shows here as what he wanted to be, a novelist. There were so many word bubbles, and one night I even leaned over to my wife and showed her some of the pages in these early issues and how there are more word bubbles on the page than art. It's like a mix between an info page and someone trying to draw a book. I know Kirby was a busy man, but in the, and they were doing this the Marvel Method way, but wow, wordy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like I said earlier, um, we usually jump on Claremont's case about like it's like, dude, you know, wrap it up here, <laughs> can, can be concise here. But Lee is no slouch. He is no slouch. He covered Magneto, and one of his one of the first panels that featured Magneto, he covered him in a word balloon because he just had words to say. And on Kirby, like I said, uh, I'm hot and cold on Kirby. There's some Kirby stuff I really, really like. Uh, his Mr. Miracle is uh, really cool to look at. A lot of his uh, Fourth World stuff is cool to look at. Uh, it's a little less cool to read. <laughs> I've never really been a huge fan of the Fourth World stuff, but uh, it's nice to look at. Um, but I, you know, I, I came in in the early 90s here, so like the X-Men that I saw first were uh, like the Jim Lee stuff and the Adam or. Adam or Andy Kubert, whichever one, was doing a volume two there right before Executioner's Song. So, I mean, I had a picture in my head of what the X-Men should look like. And then you go back to 1963 and Jack Kirby, and it is, it's, it's not for everybody. 
certainly not for everybody. I, I, I will never say that Kirby isn't an important figure, and in a lot of ways, he kind of... He's kind of the Rosetta Stone for the language of comics, right? He is kind of the the go-to. He is the patron of uh, of how comics are made in a lot of ways. But then, you know, looking at it, it isn't always what you want to be looking at here. Um, not that I would like anybody to go back and like redraw these issues, uh, but you know, it's 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 uneven at times here. And like you said, Kirby's a busy guy. He's probably in, he's probably drawing. A half dozen books at this time And so There are little bits and pieces that are skimped on I mean, we all jump on poor Rob Liefeld's case For skimping on backgrounds But, uh, well, there aren't very many backgrounds in this book Um, These rooms are featureless voids As uh, I've said before And I probably will say a few times more Um, Backgrounds are skimped on Some uh, Some of the pages where they're in costume I don't know if it's the black and white reproductions That I'm looking at, but, uh Kind of lacking in um, detail You know, it's kind of just like a a blobby sort of uh, look And again, that might be unfair Because that might be the black and white reproductions Um, We'll be able to tell in a couple of episodes Because I did just buy the facsimile edition of X-Men number 4 That'll introduce the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants So we'll be able to see that in all of its glory And see, uh, see how detailed it is And maybe, just maybe, we'll get a credit for whoever colored the damn thing Jesse continues, Professor X is a jerk. You were right, and Kitty before Kate was right. I love how Chuck times everything, and this will go on for a while. I'm glad he doesn't do this anymore, like say, Wolverine, you have 5.6 seconds to slice that ham. That whole love thing with Gene, though, creepy, and I'm glad it was decades before it was even brought up again. Slim, I mean Scott, I think is my favorite character in these earlier issues. He stands out slightly more than the others, even if standing out for him is standing back in the shadows where he can mope. I would love to check out Marvel's Universe A to Z to see exactly what these characters' powers are, and if any of them carry over from this era. There are some weird things going on with powers and abilities, especially with Xavier and Magneto. Well, Scott's always been my favorite, too, even though uh, for a lot of the time that I've known him, he has been rather a mope. Um, and I've told... I think I've told this story before... Um, I had a friend in the fourth grade, this is before I knew what the X-Men were, who the X-Men were, and uh, our teacher was kind of a hippy-dippy type, who uh, every week we would have like circle time, right? And we would talk about what we learned this week, but not like school stuff, not academic stuff, this was like life lessons, you know? What did we, what did we learn? What, what, did we, what, beca- what made us more of a person this week? And... Uh, we would always sign off by saying what we wanted to be called the next week, as in name. Like, what name did you want to be called? So for me, it was always, you know, Chris. It didn't matter. That's my name. Call me Chris. You can call me Christopher. I don't care. Whatever you want. But I had a friend who wanted to be called Logan. And uh, I didn't know what a Logan was. I just thought it was a silly name. And uh, talking to him, I found out that Logan was Wolverine. And then he wanted us all to take... X-Men names, like the following week during circle time. He's like, okay, we had, uh, he wanted, you know, a bigger kid to be called Peter. He wanted, he wanted uh, another kid to be called Kurt. And he wanted me to be Cyclops. He wanted me to be Scott. I didn't know what that was because I was the, I was the only kid in the class with glasses. So I would make, I was the only one who could be Cyclops. So I don't think I ever actually asked to be called that, but, um, it always just stuck in my head as like, okay, I was the Cyclops guy. 
and uh, and then when I started reading the X Men, and uh, I, I don't know if I identified so much with Scott, but I mean, I don't know, it was just uh, just some silliness, I suppose. But uh, Scott is always, you know, he's always my guy here, um, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to actually seeing him called Scott. I don't, I think that's coming up soon. I would have to imagine because he's he's only slim here. <laughs> he's only slim, but uh, the powers, in as far as Xavier and Magneto are concerned, yeah, they are. Very weird um, I don't know that they figured it all out yet And I don't think they figured out A lot of them here because I mean, Jean I mean, we know that she's eventually going to just have Like, all the powers, right? But here all we know is that she has her Her teleport kinesis um, But When she sidled alongside the Vanisher She's like, I can tell you're a mutant Well, how can she do that? I don't know Professor X having to have, uh, you know, Fred Duncan wear a tiara to communicate to him. Um, it's it's weird stuff. Uh, and Magneto having to actually change his polarity, like consciously change his polarity in order to attract or repel. Interesting stuff. I mean, and it stands to reason that maybe he would have to do something like that, but I just never thought that he would have to consciously do it and also that he would announce it because, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's... Just silliness, I suppose. It's just uh, Stan Lee science, probably. Now, Jesse continues. Well, I look forward to hearing you read along with me or or my reading along with you. I'm actually reading from the epic copies, although I also have the essentials. Those are where I read most of my post-giant size stories from. The epic books are awesome. I highly recommend them, though some of the older ones are pricey now, but they've started to go back and issue new printings of them. I saw that. I saw that here. It's uh, there are some wild prices for the uh, for the early epic collections, and it's like, wow. I, I just hope that uh, that they do issue some new printings of some of these books here, because I would love to upgrade. I mean, as much love as I have for the essentials, because I do, I have such a weakness for the essentials. If I see an essential volume in the wild anywhere and I don't own it already, I snag it. Same with the show, the showcase presents ones from DC. It, it's just too good a deal not to, and it's just, like I said, it's a piece of history that you can actually hold in your hands and just experience, and I mean, you don't have to worry about it, you know, getting getting dirty, and <laughs> you can actually flip through it, and it's, I don't know, I, just, I have a real weakness for those essentials, but the epics, I am coveting the, ev- the epics right now, they look really, really pretty, so maybe one of these days I will begin my upgrading um, process there. Now, Jesse wraps up with, well, until Magneto teaches a cursive writing class, make fine X-Labs. I tell you, Magneto had some nice penmanship, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, using uh, bits of bits of metallic dust there to sign his name, like, that was really, really, uh, really pretty writing there. He should. He should look into teaching that class here. But uh, I want to thank you so much for writing in, Jesse. It really, really means a lot to me, and I, I'm so happy that you're going to be on this journey with us, so I really, really appreciate it. But uh, that is where we'll leave for today. If uh, anybody out there would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, please, I beg of you, <laughs> reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram as 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, where we talk about, well, not just the 90s X-Men, all sorts of X-Men stuff. So uh, if you want to do that, that's where you do it. 
And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, which is available anywhere you find noise on the internet. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please feel free to share the show, spread the word. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you would join me today and share a little bit of your time with me. And so I'd like to thank you all so, so much. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.